too hard to see the main point of this story. Jesus has power and authority. You see that over and over. It says that he possessed authority. With authority and power, he commands unclean spirits and they come out. So Jesus, the Son of God, he has authority and power. It's fairly obvious. But it's also worth noticing in the story, how does he use that power? How will he wield his authority? Uh, you know, there's a lot of skepticism in our day about authority generally. As we've seen people in positions of power misuse that, that power, whether that's political scandal or pastoral abuse uh, or police brutality uh, or maybe you just have a bad boss. You know, it kind of makes you wonder if power and, and authority are good things at all. Indeed, there's a good bit of psychological research that shows when people are given a greater measure of authority, they will often flaunt it or misuse it. So in the 1970s, David Kipnis did experiments where he assigned people in the group, uh, some the role of manager, others the role of employee in a fictitious work setting. And the more power he gave the managers, the more likely they were to become more aggressive or express anger or criticize their employees or isolate themselves from their employees. And of course, there's the controversial uh, Stanford prison experiments where there was a major power dynamic in introduced in a prison setting. But my favorite experiment on this, perhaps the most relatable one to you and I, was a power experiment done by Paul Piff in 2012, which found that Monopoly players who were given more cash and both dice at the very beginning of the game, soon began acting noticeably different. Uh, the study reported, they hogged space at the table. They made less eye contact with others. They took more liberties, such as moving the low status player's pieces for them. They also made more noise when they moved their own pieces. Everyone knew the game was rigged, yet within a few minutes, the roles crystallized and the high status players started pushing people around and acting like they had real power and status. I just wonder how much money Dr. Piff spent on that study because I could have just invited him over for family game night and could have observed all that and you probably could have as well. But even a little bit of power can go too far if it goes to your head. What about Jesus? What kind of power does he have? And how will he wield it? Is his authority accompanied by tenderness and compassion that would channel it for good? And for the record, I think, I think you do want a savior who has some power, right? But even on a human or social level, uh, if you have a problem you cannot solve or a complaint or a pipe that you don't know how to fix, you have to turn to someone with a greater level of power or authority or influence to, to solve your issue. Love without some strength is just impotent. And strength without love, it's despotic. You know, it's brutish. But Luke wants you to see that Jesus is neither of those because he has infinite authority and endless compassion, both together, strength and love. So let's see both of these at work in these stories. Back to verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. 
So after Jesus leaves his hometown of Nazareth, which was in the passage we looked at last week, he continues to travel throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. And as he teaches, people are astonished. They're astounded at his teaching. He seems to teach in a way that exudes an innate, innate sense of authority. His word, his message, it has a direct, palpable sense of power when people listen. So like if Jesus preached in church here or in the chapel at Southeastern, he wouldn't have to quote anybody else. He could just quote himself. His words in and of themselves were, were powerful. But just how powerful? Verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, right out of the gate, right away in this story, uh, modern people, we may have some hurdles to get over in reading the story, like demons. Uh, isn't that a naive belief of a pre-scientific people who maybe they didn't properly understand mental illness? Or even if you do technically believe that demons exist because you're a Christian, you subscribe to those sort of beliefs, demonic encounters can just sort of seem to be so out there that we wonder if this sort of thing could even really or does even happen today. And I wonder if that is honestly mostly just our modern anti-supernatural colors showing here. It's the air that we've breathed for a long time. Because many people, even to this day, will testify that it certainly seems like there are strange forces that are able to overtake a person such that they speak and sound and act in strange and frightening ways. And it seems like more than just a mental illness, so there may be some overlap between the symptoms. And I personally have met people who claim to have been and seem to have been influenced and controlled by some malevolent outside force. Uh, just earlier this year, a friend of mine who's a missionary in India relayed a story to me of a man named Manish, who from his childhood was responsible for opening and closing uh, a local temple for a, for a deity, a local deity there in India. And Manish said that at age 17, he experienced what felt like a takeover of his mind and body. He began shouting at the top of his lungs and cutting himself severely, deeply. And these episodes would come and go over the course of about five years. He couldn't hold down a job because of these kind of outbursts. And he believed that it was some sort of evil spirit, but he couldn't seem to find a way to rid himself of it. Uh, temple priests, witch doctors didn't help. But Manisha's brother, Sanu, became a Christian. And Sanu told him, Jesus can free you from this evil spirit. So together they gathered with some other Christians who prayed for him. Manish cried out to Jesus for help, and he was healed. He believes that he was delivered from an evil force. Now, I'm not suggesting that a demon is behind every disease or affliction, but I think C.S. Lewis takes the right tack when he says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And so the Bible takes this middle tack, which recognizes the reality and the influence of demons without a hyper focus on them or finding a demon behind every bush. But demons are real, these stories say, and their influence may be pervasive, though not always overt. But in this story, we will get a sneak peek behind the curtain into the spiritual realm through a more overt encounter between a demon and Jesus. Back to verse 33 again. There in the synagogue was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now this man is not out living in the catacombs or the cave or something, as others may be when you come across them in the gospel stories. He's right there in the synagogue. And the unclean spirit that had attached itself to him in some way somehow recognizes something special about Jesus right away. He has knowledge and ability to perceive something about Jesus that not everyone else has. And so the spirit causes the man to cry out, Ha, though I don't think he's laughing. Other translations, as you heard Josh read, uh, render, leave us alone. Or even some will say, aha. It's just, it's an exclamatory word, an exclamatory comment. Like, whoa, what are you doing here? Is the sense. And he asks, have you come to destroy us? Some scholars think that this question, have you come to destroy us, uh, is a statement of fear, like referring to him and other demons. Like, have you come to destroy all of us? Is this the end? Uh, other scholars think it may be a statement of challenge. Have you come to destroy us? As in, the demon's referring to himself and the man, assuming that Jesus cannot destroy the demon without destroying the person as well. Either way, Jesus' response is direct and strong, verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. So what you have in this encounter is not some perennial, eternal, evenly matched struggle between light and darkness. Light always drives out darkness. And the demon is no match for Jesus' word. Notice, there's no lengthy exorcism here. There's no magic chance. Just a simple directive. Shut up and leave him alone. And Jesus is able to remove the evil without destroying the man. Luke points out, he was unharmed. Jesus was doing exactly what he said he came to do from last week's passage when he quoted Isaiah 61 and said, the Lord has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's doing what he said he came to do. Now, uh, 
Pastor John Piper asks an interesting question here. He asks, why does the demon obey Jesus? Isn't that part of being a demon? It's on the job description. Do not obey God. You know. Yeah. Demons oppose the moral will of God. It's true. When God says, thou shalt not murder or love your enemy, demons don't care about none of that. They do not. But God doesn't just have a moral will. He also has a sovereign will that he can exercise when and where he chooses. Like, let there be light. Peace, be still. Lazarus, come forth. Demon, shut up and leave. Here, Jesus exercises the sovereign will of God in a way that makes the most disobedient demon sit like a well-trained dog. That's authority. And it's not just demons that are subject to his sovereign will, it's also disease. Look in verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him, to Jesus, on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now Simon is Simon Peter who will become a major figure in the story later, but for now, he's just Simon, whose wife's mom is really, really sick. And here again, we come up against one of the features of Jesus' ministry that's so familiar to us, and yet so foreign to us as modern people, and that is his miracles. Jesus does miracles. And miracles can be hard for us to accept, hard for us to believe that they really happen. And at some level, miracles should be hard to believe. They are miracles, and so if they're by definition rather rare occurrences, right? But because they're not part of most of our lived experiences, we question whether they could even happen at all. You know, I've never seen a miracle, so why should I think that they can even happen? But I think that's a bit like uh, the old story of the king of Siam being told that in some places in the world, there's ice that was so thick that even his elephants could walk across it. And he said, no way. I don't believe you. He refused to believe it because he had never seen it. Uh, Thomas Jefferson famously cut out all the parts in the Gospels that contained miracle stories. Because while he accepted and even admired the things that Jesus taught, his worldview would not allow for the possibility of miracles. So he felt like he had to cut them out. And some would assert that science has proven there's just no thing as miracles, that everything we experience is the product of natural causes. But I can't help but be a little bit skeptical of science's ability with certainty to say that miracles cannot happen because I think science is designed to test for natural causes, not supernatural ones. In other words, science describes to us, thankfully, how the world generally works. It's a very good and helpful thing. But it doesn't, it's not built to describe what could and might happen if a creator, powerful God, decided to intervene at points along the way. So if God exists, 
then miracles have to be a real possibility. Uh, if you want some intriguing reading on a few documented accounts of miracles, uh, you might read New Testament scholar Craig Keener's book called Miracles Today. It contains some really fascinating accounts of, of the miraculous. But here, again, in our story, you have Jesus with a word, exercising his sovereign will to banish a disease that they could not cure. Perhaps he saves her life. Luke seems interested that this is a high fever. It's dangerous. And I think what Jesus does here with a word, he speaks to the fever like he talks to it, like it's personified, and it's gone. It shows his power and his compassion. Peter's mother-in-law, not really a pivotal figure in the story. Jesus doesn't need her to bankroll his campaign as Messiah, but he still heals her because they asked him to. And she feels great right away. It's not a gradual recovery for her. She's up, she gets the charcuterie board set for the guys like right away. Um, unless we think that these are just two one-off, special, one-time coincidences, Luke takes us to a whole host of healings and deliverances. Verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the Son of God. So what does Jesus do with all that power? He stays up all night healing person after person, after person, individually. This could have gone a lot quicker, think about it. And he could have gotten a lot more sleep if he had just done a mass healing, whoop. I'm sure that's what healings sound like, I would imagine. <laughs> You're all healed, go home, thank you, good night. <laughs> that's not what he does. He takes the time and dignity of looking each person in the eye and putting his hands on them, healing them individually. Many of these people were perhaps social outcasts because of the diseases that they carried or because of the unclean spirits that they had. But Jesus, unafraid of the contagion, touches them, each one showed mercy on a personal level. If you had this kind of power, <laughs> what would you do with it? Stay up all night to heal those who are afflicted, taking time for each one? What mercy, what welcome he expresses by healing in this way. This is one reason why we offer ministries of mercy to our neighbors through our church, through places like our feed ministry, through Hope Counseling, through Mercy Health Clinic, because we want to offer personable, tangible expressions of God's love to people in need, as Christ did when he walked this earth. And he didn't sell tickets to the healing show. He didn't charge admission or make anyone pay for their healing. 
which some have said that's actually the truly great miracle in this story, affordable health care. <laughs> wow. But seriously, on a, more, on, a, on a more serious note, when you see Jesus heal so many, and perhaps especially if you believe that he can heal, the natural question is, why not heal everyone? Why not heal me? Why not heal the person that I love, that I've been praying for to be healed over and over? Why doesn't Jesus heal them if he's got so much authority and power? Christian writer Philip Yancey wrote that as he struggled with this, he said, a great shadow has darkened my own life. My father died of polio just after my first birthday, despite a round-the-clock prayer vigil involving hundreds of dedicated Christians. Where was God then? Why not heal us all? And I think Jesus' uh, somewhat enigmatic actions at the end of this story actually help us understand the answer to that very difficult question. Verse 41, and demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The story ends where it began. You see here that Jesus has a mission, a purpose, that's important enough to silence his strange witnesses to his messiahship. And this mission's important enough to stop his healing and to go to another place to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He says that's his mission. Why do that? Why silence the demons? They're giving him good press from a bad source, but it doesn't mention that that's why Jesus tells them to be quiet. It seems that he silences them precisely because they were saying, you're the Christ, God's chosen one, the Messiah, and because they knew it and were saying it, he shuts them up. And it's not just demons that he does this to. He'll heal people along the way and they'll start to talk about it. And he says, do not tell anyone. He says the same thing to his disciples in Luke chapter nine. In a famous passage where he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, the Christ, the Messiah of God. And Jesus strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why keep everybody quiet? Because the Son of Man is gonna have to do some stuff that you guys do not understand and you don't expect. He's not wearing the Messiah name tag in the way that they thought he would. They thought the Messiah would go ahead and 
liberate them from oppression right then, heal their diseases right then, and bring final peace to them and to their land, to their people. But Jesus says he has another item on his agenda first, and that is suffering for their sin and for ours. You see, they did not understand at this point in the story that his mission at this time was not to destroy all evil or to heal everyone's diseases. His mission was to die and be raised so that God could remove our evil without destroying us. That's his mission. And this is why Jesus prioritizes preaching to the good news in other cities. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns, for I was sent for this purpose. His purpose in this time, in his first coming, was to proclaim the good news of the gospel. That in him, God was reconciling the world to himself forgiving their sins, adopting them into his family so that at his return for all who have come to him in faith, they do not await his judgment but his complete healing. Because you see, every person that Jesus healed in the Bible still died eventually their healing was not permanent. And even if Jesus were to heal you or someone that you love of their sickness in this life, they will again eventually get sick. They will die. It will be sad. It's a matter of time for all of us. Jesus did not come this time to heal us of all our infirmities. Not yet. So Philip Yancey writes, so why then any miracles? Did they make any difference? I readily concede that Jesus, with a few dozen healings and a handful of resurrections from the dead, did little to solve the problem of pain on this planet. That is not why he came. Nevertheless, it was in Jesus' nature to, counter, to counteract the effects of the fall during his time on earth. As he strode through life, Jesus used supernatural power to set right what was wrong. Every physical healing pointed back to a time in Eden where physical bodies did not go blind, get crippled, or bleed nonstop for 12 years, and also pointed forward to a time of recreation to come. The miracles he did perform, breaking as they did the chains of sickness and death, give me a glimpse of what the world was meant to be and instill hope that one day God will right its wrongs. To put it mildly, God is no more satisfied with this earth than we are. Jesus' miracles offer a hint of what God intends to do about it. Jesus' miracles are a foretaste, an appetizer, a look into what living in God's heaven is going to be like. For that reason, I think it's quite all right to pray for them even today. 
But for the Christian, the ultimate upshot is this. Even if God does not answer your prayers for healing now, if you belong to Jesus, eventually it all will be healed. All your diseases and ailments eventually will be healed. It's just a matter of time. And in the meantime, what he offers us in this age and in this life is immediate and permanent forgiveness, freedom from our sin and from our guilt, adoption into his family as his beloved child. You don't have to wait for that. It's absolutely done, settled, secure, done deal, a sure thing, so that one day we might experience and look forward to the portrait of Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the future for all who come to Jesus in faith. So you can face your own sickness. You can face your losses, the sickness of those that you love, your own injury, your grief, and even your death with your head held high knowing that Jesus has already forgiven your greatest sickness. He's already delivered you from your greatest enemies. So my dear friends, how do we respond? How do we respond to this truth in this passage? I think there are two words that capture it for me. Worship and mission. Worship and mission. Worship, look at the way Jesus commands disease. Look at the way he commands demons. Listen to the authority of his word and the compassion of his hands and worship him. Be astonished, be amazed at the authority that he holds and holds for our good. Pray, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And mission, did you see him say, did you hear him say in the story, it's, it's not enough for me to go around doing mighty works. I was sent to proclaim good news to other towns and other places. And so as we wait for the day where he does heal all of our diseases, let's follow him into that mission, finding ways to proclaim the good news of what God has already done for us in Christ. You can resist the devil and the forces of evil by simply living boldly and bravely for the cause of Christ in this world with your head held high, secure, knowing that as we often sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck you from his hand. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For all who are in Christ, all shall be well. So love him in worship, live for him on mission. And if you're here and you you don't know Christ, and uh, you're still sorting out where you think you stand with him, I hope you see his power and his goodness on display in this story. I think he's the one man who can wield ultimate power for your ultimate good. He's come to free you from demons that you cannot face and cure you from an internal sickness that you cannot cure. He's come to bring you good news. It says that's why he came. That in him, you are loved and you can be forgiven and set free from enemies that are far too strong for you. So as we close in prayer, if you're ready to respond to him in faith, you could pray something like this with me. Let's pray. Jesus, I admit that I am spiritually sick, enslaved to my sin and inner demons, and powerless as how to fix any of it. But you say that you've come for me in love to give me good news to deliver me from forces too strong for me. So I choose to believe that you have paid my debt, borne my punishment, offered forgiveness, and that you welcome me into the family of God. So I turn from my sins and receive you as Savior. And for everyone here who If you already follow Jesus as your Savior and your Master, you might pray something like this with me today. Jesus, I too remember that I am helpless without your intervention in my life. In my self-sufficiency, I am prone to forget that there are many things in this life that are much stronger than me and from which I need you to deliver me. Thank you that you have delivered me from my sin, from my guilt, from the evil one, and that one day you will deliver me from sickness and death altogether. So help me to trust you until that day with the ailments and weakness that I experience here and now. And in the time that you give me in this life, Help me proclaim this good news with the courage and compassion that marked your life. Amen.